Hi, everyone, and welcome to For Learning Educators podcast. I have my friends with me here again, Paula Clark, Brianne Roos, Carrie Burkowski. Ladies, it feels like an eternity since the last <laughs> time we were together. I bet if we were to count the months, we'd be beyond the 10 fingers and, and need a, a friend's <laughs> hands to help. Too long. Well, we're excited to be back together today, and what we want to just have a conversation about is the idea of perspective taking. There is a lot continuing to go on in the world around us, Um, the aggression by Russia to the Ukraine, still dealing with the fallout from the pandemic, um, still working through issues of racism. We just, as educators, we are carrying a lot that we often have to have conversations with our students about. And so it's our desire during this time together for our listeners, as well as selfishly for ourselves, that we have an opportunity just to pause and discuss and think about perspective taking. And you know, when when I was looking at perspective and what does it mean perspective taking, this idea of multiple viewpoints and how we um, just endanger ourselves not in danger. We maybe people think we're endangering ourselves when we take on different perspectives, but this idea of engendering new ways of seeing. And, and I think I might have shared maybe with Carrie, maybe with Paula, this concept of becoming a three-dimensional educator came alive for me almost a year ago now when Dr. Bernard Gant, a longtime urban educator, said that educators often teach with their heads and their hands, but engaging our hearts make it that much more transformational in the interactions, moving from two-dimensional to three-dimensional. So I want us to kind of think about perspective taking from the idea of heads, hands, and hearts. And let's, let's just start with heads. This idea of wisdom, where does this fit in in perspective taking? And, you know, I'm eager, Carrie, any thoughts that you have about wisdom, maybe particular this idea of discipline as it relates to wisdom, discipline either in self-regulation or self-examination. What what comes to mind when you think of wisdom and, and discipline? Yeah, I appreciate the question. And so it is really nice to be back, Kristen. I agree. It feels like it's been forever. So I'm so happy to be here with with my favorite, some of my favorite ladies. So thank you for that. Um, When I think of wisdom, it's funny. I don't mean to do a shameless plug for my book, but I'm going to anyway, because that's just what we do nowadays. Um, When I was writing the beginning of the book, something that I started talking about was how I identify. And what comes up is this idea of expertise, And I won't go into the long story of how I was grappling with it, but one thing I like to do, and I think that um, Brianne, Paula, and Kristen know this about me, is once I get on words, I start going to Webster's Dictionary and different places to the root of the word. And so what I figured out is I don't love the word expertise because it feels like you're done, right? It's an end point that there's no sort of moving forward. And I I started looking at that word wisdom, and I'm so glad that you brought this up. And what I noticed about the definition of wisdom is it's often knowledge that comes out of experience. Mm. And so I just really loved that idea that maybe you could have a little bit of expertise, but if it's rooted in experience, right, it's sort of that integration of things out comes wisdom. And so it's not implicit to the definition, but hopefully if you're having these deep, full, rich experiences, 
you're also experiencing different perspectives. And so your wisdom is actually informed by those multiple vantage points, perhaps. And so I really do like that word wisdom because it feels it feels fuller, it feels evolving, and it feels dynamic to me, unlike the word expertise. So that's that's what came up for me. Carrie, do you think it's fair to say that experience is a part of being rigorously trained, whether those are mm. explicit opportunities or implicit? Um, you know, Paula too would, would be really eager to hear how you how you might see that rigorously trained fitting into sort of the broader construct of, of education and experiences that, that Carrie's talking about. Well, and I think, yeah, I mean, I, I, I know that I, I read an article, I'm going to start with this. Um, it was Beerley, Kessler and Christensen, and they talked about that exact thing about the difference between what is data, what is information, what is knowledge, and then what is wisdom. And it all goes back to wisdom being experiential and, and really that grappling with, with things. I know, Kristen, in, in one of the articles you sent us or the PowerPoints, it was about discernment, right? Well, and that involves doing that reflective thinking and discernment is taking a perspective of somebody else and, and really sort of just grappling with it and coming up with that idea. Um, what is interesting in this article is they say the learning process involved with achieving wisdom does align with our heads, right? So mm -hmm. that's using your head, <laughs> using your knowledge, but we acquire wisdom. So we go one step beyond that through experience, spirituality, and passion. And mm. there's our heart, right? Yeah. And the spirituality they speak of is really an understanding and an appreciation. And, and how do we have an appreciation for other things? We take those perspectives. And, and you know, we grapple with some of the things that our students at. So they, they can be knowledgeable for me in mathematics. They can have that knowledge. They can have that information. Um, but it's not until they do the mathematical practices and, you know, discerning and arguing and debating um, until they till they become mathematicians or gain wisdom in that field and, and then they're able to apply it. Yeah, I would, I would agree, Paula, with <clears throat> what you said. The other thing I would add in there is I'm reading a book right now um, called Heroic Leadership. And in the book, they talk about how the, the most effective leaders are the leaders that put as much time into building their human skills as they do their technical skills. And so I think what I keep coming back to is for me, heads, hearts, and hands is important to unpack. But for me, it's what's more important to me is remembering that they're all part of our body and that they're integrated, right? So that we have to understand what they are separately so that I think we can focus some time on them. But at the end of the day, it's always integrated for me. And so like Paul, even Paula's definition of wisdom, yes, it's, it's, um, you know, the sort of knowledge and rigorous training and it's embedded in experience. So I feel like you can't, you, you can't really have one without the other. So to me, it's, it's the body, right? Not just those individual parts, but. So I'm having some thoughts as you all are talking, this is off script. Um, I'm sorry if you can hear those sirens, Kristen, but, um, I had the opportunity between undergrad and graduate school to live on the Navajo Nation for a year. And I got to work in a school um, with all Navajo faculty and we were serving Navajo children. And Carrie, when you were talking about wisdom, I was just brought back to that place because that as a culture, the Navajo revere 
older people. Um, and they revere older people because they are wise. And it's not because they have knowledge as much as they have all of that lived experience. And the perspective is, is incredible and it's so broad and it's 100% integrated with mind and body and spirit and head and hands and hearts. And I remember I, I was working in a school for children with special needs and I asked a five-year-old what he wanted to be when he grew up. And he said he wanted to be a Che, which was the Navajo word for grandfather. Mm. And I was so taken aback because I just am not sure that that would be an answer that would have come up in any of the classrooms that I had been in or my children had been in. I mean, it was just this really beautiful outward sign of this reverence for wisdom and for age and frankly for wrinkles and for because of all of that time, right, that they have lived and experienced. And interestingly, whereas we are taught or I was always taught to ask questions and that's a good way to get to know people and for people to get to know you out there, um, you are taught to just be quiet and to observe and to learn about a perspective that way and that you'll observe and you'll learn over time. So when we were talking about perspective taking, I just was brought back to that place where the perspective was so different, even though it was within the United States. And it kind of made me think of what do we value the most? Do we value knowledge? Do we value you know, the education experience? Do we value wisdom? And how does that drive how we teach and how we learn? You know, Brianne, piggybacking on that, what do we value and how that builds wisdom? Our society seems to, at least Western society, seems to really push back against struggles. There's so many struggles. Can there be anything good that comes from struggles? And Brown in his book, uh, Make It Stick, talks a lot about productive struggles. Carrie, you talk about struggles in, in your book as well, Dancing with Discomfort. And how do we harness the benefit of mistakes? How do we help our students take a different perspective about these struggles? That struggles, even though they're effortful, can lead to deeper, more embedded learning, can help us become more adaptable, learn flexibility, um, and, and learn that, that making mistakes is a natural part of life and that wisdom comes from mistakes. I mean, I think that some of the best things that I've learned in life are some of the hardest mistakes that I've ever experienced, but they've taught me and I'll find myself reflecting back. Remember when, I don't wanna do that again. I wanna try a different strategy or a new approach or be proactive in my, in my thinking. Yeah, that's, I, I love that, Kristen. Um, and I think that's a challenge for us as a, you know, a society to think about, to, to not associate struggle with something's wrong, right? There, and Brianne, you and I did a podcast episode, gosh, I think it was right before the holidays. That feels like a long time ago, <laughs> talking about friendship mm -hmm. and how friendship is intentional. Friendship is work and friendship is hard. And when friendship gets hard, it doesn't mean it's not a good friendship. It means it's a friendship. And so I wish we could continue to have these kinds of conversations because like, think about the times I, I try, I, I think about like the moments in my life, whether it's professional or personal, where I've struggled and the moments in, especially professional when I'm on autopilot and what's my reaction. I mean, quite frankly, my reaction when I'm on autopilot is I'm bored. <laughs> I'm not learning right? I'm, I'm on autopilot. And so I wish the conversation and the sentiment could be, there's always going to be a challenge, a struggle. That's the goodness. That's where everything happens. You're, you know, you're not really striving necessarily to get to 
easy, whatever easy is. And so it is, it is a normalizing Kristen. It is making it just part of the, the work, right. The, the day to day. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, when we, when we think about normalizing the struggle, how do we, in thinking, maybe switching now a little bit from wisdom and, and moving more towards discernment, how do we discern these fine differences, maybe in perspective or in learning a task, um, understanding someone else's experiences, and thinking about the idea of um, good, better, and best? And where does that fit in as we are thinking about perspective taking um, and how it might influence how we acquire information, how we respond to it, um, how we store it? Mm. We could do a whole podcast on, on this, Kristen. I swear we could. Um, and I'm going to say something and then be quiet because I feel like I'm taking up too much airtime. But when you when you said that, what came to me was, you know, I've recently got my certification in coaching and I've noticed with students and with clients that when you say good, better and best, the first thing I think of is we're, we're playing that comparison game right? We're comparing ourselves right. to some standard, some person, some whatever. So that's the first question. The other thing I notice is when you work with students, especially who are upset about the struggle, if you ask one or two more questions, what you usually discover is it's actually not the struggle. It's the worry and the fear of being wrong or good in a field of better and best. And so really then, and, yeah. and then, you, so then you start to unpack, well, what did, what do you value? What's important? What, right. Naming what's at your core and then reframing that, well, I'm good in a field of better and best, but I value good. I value that thing. That's good. And then anyway, so then you do some reframing. So I have found that when I, you know, if we could just sit with ourselves and others and ask one more question, you know, one more and see what, what's at the heart, what's at the core. Cause it's usually not the struggle. It's something else going on. So that's just my take. Yeah. And I, I think I like where you're headed. I, I, I think that it's the, it shows the importance of dialogue. And I know Brianne, you said that at the Navajo tribes, they were, they were more about observing, which I guess is a form of dialogue as, as you're mm -hmm. observing and watching reactions. But, you know, in the classroom, I think of classrooms that there isn't any dialogue going on. So they are never able to get at that one more thing that you're talking about, Carrie, that one more thing that might enlighten someone or give someone that perspective. Um, when we were looking at the ideas for this podcast, I came across a book called Teaching for the Students, Habits of Heart, Mind, and Practice in the Engaged mm -hmm. Classroom. And they actually call teaching, they say teaching is creating a living conversation between teachers and students. And there's a lot of classrooms where there is no conversation. It's, it's just directed from the teacher. And it sort of cycles around everything that we've been talking about. Um, it comes from a philosopher. His name was Becton back in 1981. Um, and he described the classroom this way. I'm, I'm gonna read this because I think it's powerful in a lot of what we're talking about. A classroom is a living thing. It can be more or less dialogical given the circumstance, but it's always dialogical at least to some degree. It's my belief that when all participants embrace in that dialogical nature, Dynamic, dynamicism increases, and so does tension, 
as unifying forces tug in opposition to those that individualize. It's the continual pull and movement that makes for rich explorations and engagement. And that's the experience that the kids need. So cycling that all the way back to what we said about experience, but we don't have that living, breathing classroom if we don't have the dialogue, if we don't have the tension. And what about noticing and naming those things to use the words that Carrie has in her book, right? What about kind of pausing in the moment of those conversations and saying like, look what's going on here. Look at these perspectives and look how we're shifting and, and thinking and being really explicit about that process and teaching about the value of that. And I read this really great book by Sia Versheldon. It's called Bandwidth Recovery. And it talks about what different students bring to the classroom um, in terms of background, like um, stereotype threat and microaggressions and issues of race and class and gender, big things, really heavy things. Um, and, and what they bring and what we as teachers can do to meet them in those spaces and to create really wonderful classrooms. And what I love about the book is it's theoretical and it's also practical. So when we talk about good, better, best, Kristen, what came to mind were a couple of suggestions in the book, which is to think about how we give feedback and the idea of not yet versus not um, is something that I like. It's really formative and you're embracing that and you're celebrating the not yet as opposed to only celebrating the final product. So being really intentional about the process versus the product, which is something that I, we probably talked about that in every podcast that we've done together in some, in some way. Um, but it's nice to have some concrete, you know, working at all circles back in the, in the book to Carol Dweck's growth mindset idea. And you can teach that, right? And there are studies that say when you teach that, the students do better. There's a lot of opportunity. What I love, and, and this is part of just the organic nature of our conversation, is that we started talking about heads, but very naturally led into the hands idea that questioning dialogue is very much part of the tools that we use as educators. When students are talking, we get a bird's eye view into their thinking. We are seeing what's going on, um, examining those habits of minds, those assumptions, those biases. But then we're also talking about accountability when we're engaging with our students to say, you have an active responsibility to critically reflect, to sit in the mess of that productive struggle and work really hard to gather the, the new learning. But we don't do that alone. We do that in a community of practice. Paula, to your experience in, in that article or book about how these lived, it's a living experience that we are in this together, moving forward side by side at, at different rates with different perspectives. But that's part of the beautiful tension that leads to the growth of an individual and, and the group, whatever those, those shared learning goals are. Yeah, Bell, um, Paula, when you were talking, it reminded me of Bell Hooks and teaching to transgress because she describes teachers as healers. Mm -hmm. And I love that idea of teacher as healer. And she also talks about similarly to what you said, Paula, about creating a space where everyone feels a responsibility. Um, so bringing, you know, for using the hands, you know, everybody's sort of all hands on deck, right? Being involved. And the other thing that I love about sort of that having responsibility and healer is the other thing I thought about was the metaphor that Christine Dare Cole and Peloton always uses. Imagine you have a hand on your back, right? So it's not just participating in the experience, but also knowing that you have care and support of your colleagues, your classmates. And I think empowering our teachers and, and acknowledging the healing potential of our teachers 
I just think we forget that, that we have them so focused on a means as a means to an end for our students outcomes that we forget that one of those outcomes is around healing and caring. And um, so for folks like Paula who do that work day to day, um, I just think we need to pay more attention and care to, to, to those amazing people that are in these classrooms. Well, and I, that speaks to the heart part of all of this and the, the emotional side. And, you know, I had an experience last week and I don't know what made me think of it. It was sort of a simple, simple revelation, revelation, but it was the idea that as a teacher, when we go into a classroom, somehow we are changing these students' lives forever, somehow. So it could be something small, it could be something large. And I sort of felt like this power on my shoulders because I thought for a minute, like, is that for the good or for the bad? Like every interaction we have with those students, every single one is they're, they're either gonna be changed for the good or changed for the bad. Like it's gonna be a positive experience and a negative experience. And, and I have to force myself, especially when I'm crabby and overwhelmed with things and you right. know, it's the, the last thing I wanna do, but you have to realize that that could be the moment the kid needs that support versus you just you know, maybe being critical of them or their behaviors or something. And I mean, we know how powerful the emotions are to the learning process. Of course, um, I was reading another article by my favorite neuroscientist, Dehain, and and he said, emotional systems judge experience. So our, it's, it's our emotions, which we know, judge experiences and tell us which ones to remember, tell us which ones to store in memory and which ones to get rid of. And, and if we could only like make them all positive so they are storing them all but I know that's a bigger job easier said than done you know thinking about that heart piece and and those coming alongside and encouragement I think that sensitivity to be emotionally connected with whomever we're engaging with whether it's in higher education k-12 the coaching landscape Carrie that you're talking about we'll be better able to be positioned to be sensitive to use our words with tact but that, that emotional link is deliberate and it's voluntary. And we want it to be reciprocal between those that we're engaging with. And I think, and, and Brianne, we've talked about this a lot, is transparency. Being willing to be transparent with our students, helping them to be able to hear something that we're sharing with them, even if it's difficult. How do we speak that truth in a way that's helpful that's meaningful and, and it does carry weight, Paula. Our words can, can be like iron sharpening iron or it can also be very, very painful for our students to hear, um, to hear. You know, I know educators often don't feel comfortable thinking that they take on the role of counselor, but often they're that ear that the student is going to feel comfortable sharing with or at least offloading or unloading onto them. And how do we take that and respond in a way that's, um, able to be received and is transformational in that interaction with students. And, and I think there's intentionality that goes with that, but I also think there's a state of readiness, being aware that that emotional sensitivity needs to be there in our engagement with others. Yeah, I, I had two thoughts, uh, Kristen, when Paula, when you were talking, the first is, you know, I wonder, you know, to what you were saying, Paula, I remember as an early on in my career feeling like I always had to be on and I'm using air quotes, right? And it felt like a lot of pressure. And if you were teaching a 90 minute class or all day, it was exhausting because you had to be on. And what I've noticed over the last several years and perhaps partly because of the pandemic, 
part of our responsibility as healers and educators with heart is to also show up with some vulnerability to say, you know what? And I know it's harder with younger students, but I even think with younger students to say, I'm having a day, <laughs> right? Because I think what that also invites is they take a collective side and know they don't have to be on every day either. That Paula, when she's teaching math and someone's having a rough day, she's going to give them grace because she knows what it feels like. So I guess I want to remind our listeners too, that when we talk about showing up with heart, it's not like, you know, inauthentic positivity. Rah, rah, cheerleader. Yeah. Right. It doesn't mm -hmm. have to be rah, rah, cheerleader. It can be, you know, just as ourselves with, you know, boundaries to that. So, and I lost my other thoughts, so I'll just have to wait till later till it comes back. So. <laughs> well, I think that Parker Palmer and Bell Hooks both talk about the importance of um, the helpers being healthy, right? And so the teachers attending to ourselves a little bit um, and maybe giving ourselves some grace and also, you know, to the extent that's appropriate, sharing that vulnerability and that journey with our students, you know, with boundaries, like Brene Brown tells us, but I think there's a lot of wisdom in that, in, in the idea that we're all learners, right? And that circles back originally to our discussion of expertise at the very beginning of our conversation today. And I like, Carrie, what you said that, you know, expertise kind of feels done. Wisdom doesn't, it feels more ongoing. And I think when we as teachers are also learners and we invite the students into those discussions, First of all, you're not on as much, right? Because mm -hmm. if everybody's sharing the platform and it feels good, it feels much more mutual and it feels much more relational and it's connected. And I think, I don't know, if we've learned anything from, from all of this time through the pandemic, it's that connection. It just has to be prioritized, right? For true learning to happen, it, it's gotta be at the top and it's gotta be a, a thread that we're constantly weaving. And I think that's one way to do it. Yeah, absolutely, um, Brianne. I know the other thing I was thinking about when you both were speaking is the headpiece for me also involves that that critical reflection, right? Because it, when you said preparedness, Kristen, I immediately thought there's no way anyone, facilitator, leader, teacher, parent, friend can yeah. welcome can welcome in any other perspective until they check themselves till they know their own blind spots. So they know how they feel about things. So they know what's important to them. And I, and the books I've been reading lately and the articles I've been reading, um, have been so focused on, um, the work of the leader has to start with themselves always. And I, unfortunately, I think in leadership programs that I'm familiar with, we don't do that we gloss over the critical nature, like all of, all of what we're talking about today, this should be, this should be, a, um, you know, like a course or a, a series of courses in a leadership degree, right? Where we, our first order of business while integrating it with others is what's going on with yourself. And, you know, what are you thinking about with yourself and what are your core values? So anyway, I just, I think that's another piece of this that's important. And to not be afraid of those discoveries. I think as we're doing that critical reflection of ourselves, we have to be willing to say, what are the barriers that are impacting our understanding of somebody else's perspective? And discoveries, discoveries, even though they might be hard, 
there's a pleasantness in exploring. If you have sort of that growth mindset, a pleasantness in exploring, let me really hear where you're coming from and share more about those lived experiences so that I can better um, just appreciate what, what you have been through and how it's maybe impacting your readiness to um, contribute or to be, to be a part of this group. You know, um, one of the topics that we haven't talked about yet that I think is important with motivation, uh, excuse me, with perspective taking is motivation. How do we personally find the motivation to do this, this work that's maybe a heavy lift? How do we help our students become motivated to take others' perspectives when maybe they already feel devalued in their own perspectives? So why should they be taking others' perspectives if theirs isn't being listened to or valued and respected? So this idea of motivation and how does that fit into perspective taking? That's a tricky one, Kristen. I think it's tricky and we haven't said it but I think it's assumed with this group that like there's a lot of privilege that comes with the ability to take perspectives, to take the time to critically reflect, to value struggle, right? So I think we we want to be mindful of of struggles that we can reflect on and struggles that we're just in, right? If we're talking about things like food insecurity and poverty and Ukraine facing war, those are very different struggles that require a, a completely different depth of beyond what we're talking about. If we're talking about sitting in a classroom or a meeting and trying to understand how to motivate people to take perspective, I guess, you know, if I'm in a one-in-one or even a, a small group in one situation, I might tap into my own learning and how I've shifted as a result of taking the audience's perspective, right? S trying to show them um, the value that their perspective has brought to my thinking. And then perhaps that opens up a door for them to consider the, the value that others' perspectives might take. I mean, that's been my tact. It doesn't always work. Um, I think this is, this is where some of the hardest work happens. It's to convince people to take other perspectives. But that's sort of been my tact is to share sort of how I'm learning and what's changing and shifting in me when I hear and listen to them speak, so. Carrie, I was just in a charter school in Baltimore last week, and we were observing some seventh and sixth grade math classes. And to your point about perspectives and how it can, in this instance, almost be radical for others learning. And this is, this is very, um, you know, we're not talking um, war and pandemic, but we were looking at the, the classroom teacher was teaching percents of, and the students were really struggling with all of the mathematical vocabulary. And finally, one student got the answer and the teacher said, how did you do that? And the student responded, I simply thought about money and quarters and coins, and I made that conversion. And you could see the light bulbs go off for the other students. So he shared his perspective of how he was approaching that mathematical problem. And the teacher sort of took it as a teachable moment and saying, yes, there are different ways to be thinking about the relationships in mathematics. So very sort of concrete example of some of the high level pieces you were just talking about, but inviting that student voice to share their perspective, the strategies they're using can really allow for growth, not only in themselves, but as well as, as other students. So Kristen, that point 
reminds me of something that I think I heard from Brene Brown, which is if you want to know about somebody's perspective, you ask them and then you believe their answer. And, you know, you brought up a really concrete example of asking in a math class. And the conversation that I was listening to was about bigger issues. It was more like racial reckoning and what is it like to be, you know, for example, in my context, a student of color in a predominantly white institution. So if I want to know that, you know, I, maybe I could establish a nice rapport with some of my students and, and ask the question in a way that's appropriate and um, not singling them out. But the point was, don't try to put yourself as a white person in their shoes. Ask what it's like to walk in their shoes and then believe the answer. And I, I learned a lot from that statement. And I think it's hard. I think that's really hard to do. And I think we absolutely have to do that work. Yeah, I think that's that's great. Brianne, I was going to tell just a really quick story, Kristen, about perspective taking that I tried with when I was at the Bloomberg School of Public Health teaching a microeconomics course, the, the first day of class, I, um, cause I, I think I had, I was in the ed D and I think I had just learned about like divergent thinking and creative <laughs> thinking and what that, so what I did is I, I had the students, you know, of course I told them to bear with me as I tried this new thing on them. Um, I took a chair and I put it on top of a desk and I gave them about five minutes in pairs to think of all the ways they could use this, this thing besides sitting on it. Right. So for a kid like my seven year olds, that would be super easy. They put it on its side and make a fort. They'd get under it. They'd be rowing on it with a boat. Right. It would be a shield. It would be but that's perspective taking Absolutely. when you look at something. So if you're looking for something like a, an icebreaker or something to begin the day, sometimes being very literal and, you know, in, in coaching, you do this, have someone you know, take a trip, take a walk around their, their bedroom or their office and look at the same object from a different side of the room and see what they see. Right. So if you're having, if you have folks that struggle with that, sometimes doing a very literal, um, activity can start to bridge that gap from, you know, not understanding it to understanding what we mean by perspective taking. So just a little story. I love it. Sort of that physical movement um, creates a new way of seeing something. And then Brianne, your part about beliefs, you know, belief, our belief system guides our thinking and our actions. And if we believe that the questions that we ask are going to help us get more information about understanding a uh, someone else's perspective, that's going to guide our thinking and our behaviors towards that individual, towards the, the idea that's being wrestled with. Well, Paula, we would be remiss if we didn't close our podcast <laughs> conversation without giving you the final words. You know, our belief system is, Paula, that you really do wrap it up in this summative way for us. So no pressure. You were no talking pressure. earlier about, you know, words have the opportunity. So we just roll. teed it up for you. <laughs> right. Uh, so I had two in mind, but I think I'm going to go with a lighthearted example to end today. Um, I, and I don't know why this sticks with me, but I've always heard that there's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. And that's what we've talked a lot about in, in our journey towards being um, learning experts, if you will. Um, so the difference is if you're knowledgeable, you know that a tomato is a vegetable. But if you're wise, you know that it doesn't. Uh, I'm sorry, let me restart that. If you're knowledgeable, you know a tomato's a fruit. But if you're wise, you know that it doesn't belong in a fruit salad. <laughs> and how we know that is because of experience and from mm. observing others cooking and from observing where we put 
tomatoes in, in our cooking. Mm. However, what I learned today is that taking a different perspective, maybe it does belong in a fruit salad. I've seen it coupled with watermelon, you know, so it's that perspective taking that allows us to alter what we believe and alter and continue to learn and become more and more wise in our journey. Mm. Love that. I thought you were trying to, I thought you were trying to tease us, Paula, with no, the tomato as a vegetable. A <laughs> <laughs> that was great. A great debate in our household. Well, ladies, you inspire me to want to be more reflective, intentional in my interactions with others and um, desiring wisdom. So thank you for modeling how to be present with your heads, your hearts, and your hands. I'm better because of the time that we spend together. Hopefully it won't be months and months before we do our next podcast. So to our listeners, stay tuned. We're getting back on track. Hopefully you all are doing well. We've missed the opportunity to share our thoughts with you. So we are eager to keep this going. Thanks everyone and take good care. Thank you.